1, as is typical when we have a book sermon, as tonight is, we won't necessarily be parking on a passage, so we'll be flipping a little bit, we'll be kind of running through things a little bit. You can follow along with me. I don't know if you have an outline there, nor do I actually, as I recall, um, I don't know how detailed I made it. However, if you do have the, the handout that I gave you this morning, um, the, the newsletter for the month, that outline is very thorough, and you could follow along with that if you wanted, or you can follow along in the notes that I um, provided. They should help as well as we go through this book sermon on John. John is probably, as I was meditating on it, one of the most focused books in all of Scripture. It's one of four Gospels reflecting the life of Christ, and yet it is very different from the other three. The other three, often known as the Synoptic Gospels, they are histories of Jesus Christ and His ministry. They were meant to show things about Jesus Christ, yes, but they were meant to be histories, to account for his life. John has a different focus. If you would turn with me as we begin to John chapter 20. Near the end of John. John's focus is not so much on giving you a historic or chronological accounting of all that Jesus has done. It has a very different purpose. You will find, if you look through a recounting, many of you may be in the back of your Bibles or in a study Bible or in uh, the back of a concordance or whatever the case may be, might have uh, some degree of synoptics where it will tell you the various events in the life of Jesus Christ and tell you where it's found in each one of the Gospels. And you'll find that John oftentimes omits, uh, he, he omits large portions of that which the other Gospels have in them. Because John's not trying to just reflect the life of Christ. If you would look with me in John 20, beginning verse 30, we'll look at verses 30 and 31. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. There is one purpose to this book, and that purpose is right there in John 20, 31. These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Every single word that John put into this gospel is for this purpose. Every single account, historical account of the life of Jesus Christ found in this gospel is directed toward this purpose. And that's important to know. Why is it that certain things were left out and certain things were added? Because John is trying to build a framework. He's not trying to build a framework of this was Jesus Christ's life. He's trying to build a framework of this is what you need to know in order that you might believe. These are things that will help you see what you need to see and recognize what you need to recognize through the Holy Spirit, of course. So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed, that word meaning in, the, in uh, the, the Greek. The one who would come, the one who God has designated, the Son of God. And then that believing, we might have life through his name. There will be two parallel thoughts as we 
journey through this gospel. The first thought is both pointing to this one purpose. The first thought is that the Word of God incarnate, who is Jesus Christ, has revealed Himself to the world. So Jesus Christ, who is the Word, who is God in flesh, has revealed Himself to the world. The second parallel thought that is running through this book as it points to this idea that we might believe is that every man bears individual responsibility of responding to the revealed Word of God. And you'll notice, I believe this is in your notes there, you'll notice that the Word is capitalized. Here we actually have Jesus Christ being referenced as the Word. One of the things that I do that's a little bit particular to me that you might not find in any of my writings is that I tend not to capitalize the Word if I'm just referencing Scripture I only capitalize the W in word if I'm referencing Jesus Christ. And that's something I do to um, distinguish. Well, in, in the book of John, we are talking about the word, Jesus Christ. The capital W, word. If we even want to go so far as parsing between the word of God, Jesus Christ, and the scriptures which he has inspired. I don't necessarily think that you would have to do that. Um, and you would be just as right to capitalize the W if that's what you do. But we're talking about the Word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. In John's Gospel, what we see then is a multifaceted validation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we see that with the intent that each man might personally believe in Jesus and that Jesus is the Son of God. And so that's what we are going to see as we look through the book of John. We're going to, as it were, take this one purpose. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we're going to look at it from this angle. And then we're going to kind of shimmy around and we're going to look at it from this angle. And then we're going to kind of come over here and we're going to look at it from this angle. And we're going to see the same thing from multiple angles. We're going to look at Jesus Christ and His miracles and see Jesus is the Son of God. We're going to look at Jesus Christ and His authority and see Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We're going to look at Jesus Christ from His works, from His death, from His resurrection. We're going to see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we're all looking at the same Christ, but we're looking at Him from different angles. We're looking at it from different means. And, and the outline that you have that I gave you bears that out, as will the outline that we're speaking of this evening, which should reflect the one I gave you pretty closely. Um, I shouldn't need to reinvent the wheel. If I do the outline once, I shouldn't have to undo the outline to do a different outline, right? I'll take that prerogative. So, let's look at this multifaceted approach as we walk through the book of John this evening. The first point, the first section of the book is uh, 1-1 through 6-21. So, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 21. And that is Jesus Christ, the revealed Word of God incarnate. Jesus Christ, the revealed Word of God incarnate. That word incarnate simply means in flesh. Incarnate. In flesh is what that word means. The gospel opens by describing the person of one known initially only as the word of God. Look with me if you would in John 1 beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended 
it not. That's going to be our memory work for the next month and <coughs> our services. So that, that particular passage will become very familiar to you. This person, known as the Word, described as having existed in the beginning, described as one that was in fellowship with God, the Word was with God, described as being the same as God in essence, in quality and character. The Word was, in fact, God. He's described as having within Him life, and that life being light. Even in the book of Ephesians, we've seen light, have we not? The um, writer of Ephesians, Paul, makes mention of the importance of walking in light and rejecting darkness, putting on light and putting off darkness. Why would Paul want to use that analogy? Well, because this theme runs throughout the scriptures. And it's all rooted in the reality that Jesus Christ is the light. That Jesus Christ is light. And that in that light, the light that we're supposed to put on, the darkness that we're supposed to shun is life. We are clothed in that light at salvation. And yet we have the responsibility of living out that light in our lives. So we are introduced to the word. In this particular passage, following the description of who this person is, John then summarizes what this person did. Look with me in, ver- in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. He, speaking of the light, the word, was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own. And his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So this person who we have been introduced to as the word, as having been in the beginning, as having been with God, as having been in essence, quality and character, God himself, the one who is light and in this light is the life of men, he came to shine that light into the darkness. And as we know from verse 5, the darkness, as it says, comprehended it not. He came into His creation. Into the world that He created. And that world didn't know Him. He came into His own. To those that He had chosen to work through for thousands of years and his own received him not John 1 10 through 12 gives the reader the first insight into those parallel themes running throughout the book here we see that the word of God Jesus Christ the word incarnate the light that is life clearly revealed himself to his creation And that creation knowingly and intentionally rejected the revealed word of God from heaven. That is the theme of John. But of course, it doesn't end just with his own received him not. We have verse 12. But as many as received him from his own and otherwise, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. 
And that really is the purpose of the book, is it not? These three verses sum up everything that the book is showing. Jesus Christ revealed to man, mankind by and large rejecting that revelation, but those that did receive it have the power to become the sons of God. Have the opportunity to believe on his name, as John 20, verse 31 described it. John, then, as he continues in uh, chapter 1, verse 19, through chapter 4, verse 54, describes the manifold ways in which the word, Jesus Christ, soon identified by this name, Jesus, personally manifested his person and his work in the world. He was testified of through John in chapter 1. He was testified of through the Holy Spirit. The baptism of Jesus Christ is not specifically mentioned in the book of John, interestingly enough. But what is mentioned is John testifying of the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus Christ and resting on him. And so he was testified of by the Holy Spirit. He was testified of through the disciples. And near the end of chapter 1, we see Nathaniel under the fig tree. And as Jesus Christ interacted with him, Nathaniel said in verse 49, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Testified of before Nathaniel came, the disciples said, We have found the Messiah. Men testifying of who Jesus Christ is. And as we continue through these chapters, all the way through, um, ending in chapter. Four, um, we see him testified through the miracles of the Cana of Galilee, testified of his uh, power of the elements. He was testified through his authority as he then would cleanse the temple. He was testified of through his, uh, the Old Testament law as he's talking with Nicodemus and showing how he is paralleled in the, the Old Testament law through the serpent as he speaks of how the Old Testament law testifies of him to a Pharisee who would have clung to the Old Testament law. In chapter 4, we see him interacting with the Samaritan woman, and we recognize that Jesus Christ is not just testified of in the law, as the Pharisees would have focused, but he's testified of through the prophets. Do you recall the Samaritan woman uh, speaks of how her fathers had worshipped on that mountain, and how the prophets had talked about that great mountain, that mountain being the mountain of Gerizim. And how yet the Jews still would worship on the mountain, Mount Zion, where the temple is. And Jesus Christ saying, there's coming a day where you will not worship on either, but you will worship in spirit and in truth. She says, I perceive that you're a prophet. As he testifies to her of her own indiscretions, as she's been married so many times, we'll get there. But what we see is that the law, the prophets, Israelites, the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to the Messiah, all testifying that this man, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Christ. In chapter 5, verse 1 through 621, John, the writer of the book John, recounts the ways in which Jesus, the Word of God, Reveals his power to his creation. So we've seen Jesus Christ. He is the revealed word of God. He is revealed in his person. He's revealed in his work. Then he is testified to. And then in, in chapters 5 and 6. He is revealed through his power over creation. The impotent man is healed. As he shows his power over the body. 
the multitudes are fed as he shows his power of provision. The seas of Galilee are calmed as he shows his power over nature. This is all in chapters 5 and 6. Yet these six chapters were only the beginning of Christ's ministry. John chose out these particular aspects of the early days of Christ's work that reveal a strong dividing line. And this is, this is where it's all bringing it back to his purpose. See, each of these events that happened in the life of Jesus Christ are revealing a very strong dividing line between those who accept the revelation of God and those who reject the revelation of God. The interesting thing is that this dividing line that is being drawn is not being drawn between those who saw his miracles and those who did not. It was not being drawn between those who had an upper class upbringing, an academic upbringing and knew the scriptures and those who did not, the lower class. It was not drawn between those who were religious and those who were not religious. It was not drawn between a race or a gender or a people group or an upbringing or a society. As we look through the, the book of John, the gospel, we're going to see a dividing line between those who believe and those who do not believe. And that dividing line is drawn uh, across one bound. And that bound is a personal decision to accept or to reject the word of God as it's been revealed. So it is that the great preacher's words in Ecclesiastes find validation again when he says that there was nothing new under the sun. See, salvation has never been about family. Salvation has never been about upbringing. Salvation has never been about culture. Salvation has always been a choice to accept or reject what has been revealed to you about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Salvation has always been about accepting the revelation that God has given. And now we see in the book of John the revelation of God in flesh. God himself in the person of Jesus of Nazareth coming down to earth. The manifestation of God in flesh. Chapters 1 through 6 bear out this manifestation through miracles. Through testifying. That's what we're supposed to see as we read these first six chapters. Wow, this man is something different. This is more than just a man. This is the Son of God. As we continue in chapter 6, verse 22, and all the way through the midway point of the book, chapter 12, verse 50, we'll see our second point. The first point was Jesus Christ, the revealed Word of God incarnate. Our second point, Jesus Christ, the authoritative Word of God to mankind. Jesus Christ, the authoritative Word of God to mankind. And this is where not just His ability and His work is going to be manifested, but His authority will be manifested as we continue in the book. In verses twenty, in chapter 6, verse 22 through uh, 71... His authority is seen at Capernaum. Here, the people that had been wanting food, they had been fed in the previous chapter, were now seeking Jesus Christ on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And they were seeking Him, wanting more food, instead of believing on Him 
as God. And as we see that particular dichotomy, Jesus Christ will speak with them and he'll say, you didn't come back to me. You didn't seek me out on this side of the, of the lake because you believed I'm God. You sought me out because you were hungry and you wanted more food. Did these men and women even stop to consider what this man had done? Did they even stop to consider that this man multiplied food right in front of them? No, they didn't. They were simply hungry. In chapter 7, Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. At this feast, Christ is contending and he proves out of the scriptures that he is in fact God, the Son of God. Did those with whom he was speaking even stop to consider exactly what Jesus Christ had said? That he had stopped every argument? That he had proven himself to be God? No. In chapter 8, Jesus Christ is at the temple. The people attempt to trap him through that woman taken in adultery rather than recognize him to be the light of the world. The people come and they throw this woman before him and they say, here, taken in the very act of adultery, what are you going to do? Did they even stop to consider exactly what this man had demonstrated? What this man had demonstrated when he said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone at this woman? Did they even stop to consider what that meant about their hearts, that no man was without sin? We don't even know what Jesus Christ knelt down and wrote in the, in the dirt. We don't even know what it was that they saw as his finger went across the dirt that day. But what we do know is every man walked away from that situation and that woman was left unharmed. And what John is trying to highlight through each one of these circumstances at the end of chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, is that every single man that came in contact with Jesus Christ came in contact with the revealed Word of God and that every single one of them at that point had a decision to make. Are they going to accept the revelation of God or are they going to reject the revelation of God? In uh, chapters 9 and 10, Jesus Christ is near the pool of Siloam. The religious leaders chastise a man who has been blind since birth rather than marveling at the newfound sight of this blind, previously blind man. Did these religious leaders even stop to consider exactly what Jesus Christ had done? No. They were too busy trying to subdue his teaching, trying to subdue his doctrine to marvel at his authority. In chapters 11... 57 through 1236 is kind of the pinnacle. Jesus Christ is at the tomb of Lazarus in Bethany. Lazarus is raised from the dead. And the religious leaders, seeing a man who has risen from the dead, seek to kill him. Did they even stop to consider the magnitude of what it meant that this man restored the dead to life? No. They were too busy trying to preserve their false religious system that they had erected to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. Throughout all of these examples, what is it that we see? 
We do not see that salvation comes to those who are worthy. We do not see that salvation comes to those who are chosen. What do we see? We see salvation come to those who, when they are in the presence of the revealed word of God, when they recognize what God's word is saying, when they, are, when they understand the revealed word of God, and they're humbled in the presence of that God, they do not fight They do not try to salvage their pride. They do not try to salvage their own authority. They do not try to explain God away. They do not ignore God. They humble themselves before God. And when they finally yield to the authority of Christ's person and work, when they finally humble themselves, they gain eternity. That's what we see in these chapters. We see men who saw a man risen from the dead. We see a crowd of people who saw Jesus Christ multiply loaves and fishes. And when they are standing in the midst of the revealed word of God, who has just performed a miracle that is impossible by man's standard, they miss it. Because they refuse to humble themselves before God. Because they refuse to release their pride. Because they refuse to say, you know what God, from what I've seen, this man has the authority, not me. I'm not the one with authority. He's the one with authority. Instead, they explain it away. Instead, they try to kill Lazarus all over again. What good would that have done? He's already been risen from the dead. When I was speaking with Elijah on the night he got saved, we were also speaking with Cody, and Cody was a wrestler. And Cody was talking about wrestling, and he said this whole salvation thing is kind of like wrestling he said isn't it this whole idea it's kind of like I'm wrestling with God over this he said I was a wrestler for a while and I kind of feel like I'm wrestling and I said yeah it is kind of that way this was Cody not Elijah Elijah ended up getting saved Cody did not but I said yeah it is kind of like wrestling I said except there's a major difference when you're wrestling and those shoulders hit the mat and you have to tap out you've just lost you've lost you, you, you walk off that mat with your head down because you have just lost when you've yielded. Said, it's the exact opposite with what you're going through right now with God. You're wrestling with Him, but when you finally let your shoulders hit the mat, when you finally tap out, you have just released, you, you've lost your pride, but you've gained everything in return. You've won. When you tap out, when you have finally yield. In that wrestling, you win. You gain eternity. That is the struggle in the heart of man. To humble ourselves before the Almighty God. To accept Jesus Christ's person and work. When our heart says, no, we want to be there. We want that authority. We want that There's an obvious division at the end of chapter 12 in the Gospel of John. Chapters 1 through 12 are the events of Jesus Christ's public ministry. Chapters 13 through 21 will go in a different direction. And at this break, it's very obvious in the text. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 12. You say, 
Pastor, is there really a break in the text, or are you just kind of saying there's a break in the text? No, there's a break, and the very language in the book of John shows us that there's a break. Look with me, if you would, in John 12, and there's a summary of the ministry of Jesus Christ beginning in verse 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Esaias, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Esaias saith again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Esaias when he saw his glory, and spake of him. The quotation there out of Isaiah chapter 8. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness and if any man hear my words and believe not I judge him not for I came not to judge the world but to save the world he that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him the word that I have spoken the same shall judge him in the last day for I have not spoken of myself but the father which sent me he gave me a commandment what I should say and what I should speak and I know that his commandment is life everlasting whatsoever I speak therefore even as the father said unto me so I speak following this declaration the public aspect of Christ's ministry according to the book of John is finished the next five chapters deal exclusively with the interaction between Jesus Christ and his twelve disciples at the last supper before his crucifixion the final four chapters after that reveal his death, burial, resurrection, and his continued ministry following his death. So let's look at that together. We saw in our first point, Jesus Christ, the revealed word of God incarnate. That was in chapters 1 through 621. In our second point, we saw Jesus Christ, the authoritative word of God to mankind. That's John 6:22 through 1250. Our third point is Jesus Christ, the personal word of God to all who believe. Jesus Christ, the personal word of God to all who believe. These five chapters, chapters 13 through 17, are extremely personal in nature. Extremely personal in nature. These chapters center on the preparation of the disciples for Christ's departure through his death. In chapter six, uh, excuse me, 13, Jesus Christ teaches on devotion. In chapter 14, Jesus Christ teaches on his imminent departure. In chapter 15, Jesus Christ teaches on the concept of abiding in him. In chapter 16, Jesus Christ teaches on the particular ministry of one whom he calls the Comforter, the Holy Spirit that would come after his death. In many ways, these chapters almost seem to be an aside, do they not, to his purpose, to the character and purpose of the book. Remember the purpose... These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. 
if the book is centralized upon Christ's person and work in order that the world might believe why add these chapters regarding the disciples purpose and work after Christ is gone why add these these chapters of preparation well there's two reasons as I've meditated through it that I see the first reason is because these 11 men were going to step out and they were going to step into the world after Christ's death and when they did so they were not going to be proclaiming their own message their purpose they were going to step out into the world to continue Christ's message and so really these these chapters these five chapters serve to highlight to touch as it were the person and work of Jesus Christ to the person and work of those who would carry on his ministry after his death. These chapters are a link. Through these five chapters, John is validating your ministry. He's validating my ministry to the world around us. Because it is not your ministry and my ministry. It is Christ's ministry through us. Through these five chapters, John is helping us link ourselves to Christ's ministry. He is helping us see that our ministry is linked to Christ's ministry. He's helping us understand that we serve to extend what Christ was teaching to the world around us today. Through these five chapters, you and I have the confidence of knowing that we are doing what we're doing because Christ expects us to do it. The second reason I see as to why these chapters would be here and be very important is because, as I had already mentioned, maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't, and I'm sure most of you know it, that there were only 11 disciples that went out into the world after Christ's death from this group that are found in these five chapters. There was one missing. That one's name is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot spent nearly three years intimately connected to Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. He saw the multiplying of the loaves and fishes. He stood there and saw a dead man walk out of the tomb. He was in the upper room as Jesus Christ intimately poured out his heart to the disciples for five chapters. And this man, Judas Iscariot, never believed. Three years in Christ's presence. Three years of miracles. Three years of teaching. And Judas Iscariot never believed on Christ. These five chapters are a testimony to the message of the entire book. That belief is a choice that each one of us must make. Our circumstances are not going to make it for us. Our knowledge is not going to make it for us. Our eyesight is not going to make it for us. It must be a choice made by us to believe on Christ. Judas Iscariot, one of Christ's 12 closest men, betrayed Christ into the hands of sinners for 30 pieces of silver. I'm glad that many of us in this room have grown up in Christian families. I'm thankful that most of us in this room have professed to believe on Jesus Christ 
by grace through faith. I am thrilled that every member of this body who is born again has watched God work faithfully in the lives of those in this church. But none of those things, being a part of this church, seeing God work through this church, being a part of the prayer times, being a part of a family that loves God, being a part of a church that loves God, sitting under preaching, none of those things get a man, get a woman, or get a child into heaven. Belief is what translates a person from this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Appropriation of the truths, the person, the work, the truth claims, all that Jesus Christ taught. Appropriating it into our own lives, that is the condition for salvation. But once you have believed, once you have made that choice, once you have accepted Christ, take heart. The message you have received and the message you are called to deliver, the message which Jesus Christ carried 2,000 years ago, is a message that tells us that once we are in his hand, no man can pluck us out. You are not the, mess, the bearer of a message that's sourced in man's wisdom. You are not the bearer of a message that's sourced in, God's philosophy, or in, in man's philosophy. You are not the recipient of something earthly. You are the recipient of something heavenly. You are the beneficiary of a heavenly message. It's sourced in God. Its power is found in God. And that message will accomplish the will of God in our lives and in the lives of everyone with whom we're able to tell it to. Through verse, excuse me, through chapter 17, we saw that Jesus Christ is the personal word of God to all who believe that personal revelation. Finally, in chapters 18 through 21, we see Jesus Christ, the sufficient word of God to bear the sin of the world. Jesus Christ, the sufficient word of God to bear the sin of the world. All of this teaching thus far, the miracles, the authority, the, the discourses, all that goes through in the book of John, the, the personal time with his disciples, the, the prayer, that high priestly prayer in John 17, all of these things, speaking about him being the door, him being the way, the truth, and the life, him being the shepherd of the sheep, all of this was looking forward to chapters 18 through 21. The final, final chapters of the Gospel of John recount the consummation of Christ's person and work through His death upon the cross. Chapter 18 describes the false trial that Jesus had before the Sanhedrin and Christ's interaction with the Roman governor Pilate. It is within this chapter that the true injustice of what is happening comes to the forefront of the reader's minds and hearts. It is within this chapter that the reader sees that Sinful men presume to place themselves on the judgment seat above the Son of God. It is in this chapter that it is confirmed everything that we've seen to this point. That each time Jesus Christ performed a miracle. That each time Jesus Christ claimed the authority. There were men who humbled themselves and believed. And there were men who thought that they had the authority to sit in judgment over God. And impose themselves upon Him. And say, is this truly God? And all of that is consummated in this, this mock trial whereby these men 
be it the Sanhedrin or be it the Roman governors, somehow presume that they can sit in authority over the Son of God and pass judgment upon Him. And yet Jesus Christ submits Himself to it that God's will might be accomplished. Christ had done nothing wrong by any man's standard. He was not being killed for any crime. He was being killed because He had come to claim authority over a world who wanted to keep that authority for themselves. Do you see it in the world today? Can you see it every day? Can you see it when Chick-fil-A is boycotted because the owner has said that we believe in the traditional family and what we see here is a world that is so bold as to say we reject the very image of God found in this institution of marriage because we don't want God. That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying. We reject God. We reject His authority. They are doing exactly what the entire book of John is reflecting. Men who see something about the character of God revealed in the world, in the, my particular example, in marriage, and they say we've got to get rid of it because in it is found the image of God. In it is found the character of God, and we are rejecting that God. He was not being killed for a crime. He was being killed so that the world could reject his authority. He was being killed by unbelieving men in order that they could continue in their unbelief without the inconvenience of his conviction upon their hearts. That's why they killed him. And that is why in this world we will face persecution. Not because God is not displaying himself to the world around him, but because the unbelieving world doesn't want us to display God to, their, to them. Because when they see us live out Jesus Christ in our lives, they feel conviction. That is why they want to suppress us. And that is why they hung the Son of God upon a tree. Chapter 19 describes the crucifixion itself. Pilate, in one final act of ironic truth, he questioned what is truth, and then in one final act of truth, he places the inscription above Christ's head that enumerates the crime for which Jesus Christ was tortured and killed. Does anyone remember what the crime was that was placed above his head? What was it that was enumerated on the cross above Jesus Christ's head? Courtney? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. How ironic that the one who questioned truth, that this people that presumed to stand above the Son of God and proclaim His death so that they could reject His authority, in the end, He truly was announced, the reason why he was being killed was announced right above his head. He was being killed because he claimed, he came to claim the authority that he rightfully had. And the Jews rejected that. And the world rejected that authority. Ironic in its truth, in its accuracy. In Christ's final moments, he would pause to ensure that his mother would be taken care of. Then, as he yielded up his life upon the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He bore sin's penalty for the very people that hung him there. But the story's not over. 
Chapter 20 recounts the glorious revelation of the empty tomb and the visual confirmation of the resurrected Jesus Christ. He appeared to Mary. He appeared to ten disciples, Thomas not being there, named Didymus. Then he appeared to all eleven, Thomas being there so that he could place his hands, or so that he could see the, the hand print, the, the, the nails in his hand, so he could place his hand in the side. And the book finishes by openly publishing the purpose and recounting the commission which Jesus Christ gave to those who had, he, whom he had left to finish the work. And so we come again to John 20, verse 31. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. And as the book closes in 21, speaking of Christ's final interaction with his disciples, John takes a moment to inform the readers that though there was much that was in fact included in the book, there is far more that he did than could be recorded. This book could not contain it. And in John 21-25, the writer says, And there are many other things which Jesus did, the which... If they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the book that should be written. And he closes with an amen. Thus is the character of the book that we're about to study. The character of a book that reveals everything that a man needs to understand who it was that came into this world, what he did and the claims that he made upon us. A book that shows more than anything a world that by and large rejected them, but gives us the hope of recognizing that if we will but receive it, but as many as believe, to them God does give the power to become the sons of God. And I would pray that this, this series over the next many months would be a motivating factor in our own lives to understand our salvation, perhaps for those who have not received Christ, by God's grace to receive Christ, but the ability to reflect that to the world around us so that others might believe and that believing they might have life through His name. Let's pray together.